This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Please sit down and we'll start. Good morning. My name is Lynn Eden, and I'm the Associate Director for Research at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at the Stanford Institute for International Studies. Welcome to this morning's first plenary panel, Looking Ahead, A New Nuclear Arms Race. Sounds positively inviting with that title. Let me first introduce our speakers, and then I'll explain how we'll proceed. Our first speaker is Dr. Hans Blix. Dr. Blix was born in Uppsala, Sweden. He received his PhD from the University of Cambridge and his Juris Doctor from Stockholm University. Dr. Blix was a member of Sweden's delegation to the United Nations General Assembly for 20 years, a member of the Swedish delegation to the UN Conference on Disarmament in Geneva for 16, and was Sweden's Minister of Foreign Affairs. From 1981 to 1997, Dr. Blix served as the third Director General of the UN's International Atomic Energy uh, Agency, the IAEA. During that time, he guided the agency through several crises, including the Chernobyl disaster and Iraq's and North Korea's violations of their safeguard agreements. From March 2000 to June 2003, Dr. Blix headed the UN's weapons inspection team in Iraq, formerly known as the UN Monitoring, Verification, and Inspection Commission, or UNMAVIC. In his final report, Dr. Blix wrote that the, quote, Commission had not at any time during the inspections in Iraq found evidence of the continuation or resumption of programs of weapons of mass destruction or significant quantities of proscribed items, whether from pre-1991 or later. In 2004, Dr. Blix published the book Disarming Iraq about the diplomacy and inspection efforts before the U.S. invasion in 2003. Also in 2004, Dr. Blix was awarded Commander of the Legion of Honor. Dr. Blix is currently the head of the Weapons of Mass Destruction Commission, an international initiative from the Swedish government acting on a UN proposal. The final report containing the Commission's proposals and recommendations will be presented around the end of this year. Here's how we'll, let's see, I think what I'll do is uh, introduce uh, all of our speakers and then uh, and then we'll start. Our second speaker will be Scott Sagan. Scott Sagan is a professor of political science here at Stanford University and co-director of the Center for International Security and Cooperation, part of Stanford's Institute for International Studies. Professor Sagan is a graduate of Oberlin College and holds a PhD from Harvard University. Before joining the Stanford faculty, Professor Sagan served as a special assistant to the Director of the Organization of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the Pentagon. He also served as a consultant to the Office of the Secretary of Defense and is currently a consultant to the Los Alamos National Laboratory. Uh, Professor Sagan's main research interests are ethics in international relations, accidents in complex organizations, and nuclear proliferation in South Asia. Professor Sagan is the author of the books Moving Targets, Nuclear Strategy and National Security, 
Also, the award-winning The Limits of Safety, Organizations, Accidents, and Nuclear Weapons, and co-author with Kenneth Waltz of The Spread of Nuclear Weapons, now in its second edition. He co-edited the book Planning the Unthinkable, is currently editing a book on nuclear proliferation, and is working on a collection of his own essays for a book tentatively titled A Fragile Peace, Understanding Our Nuclear History and Nuclear Future. Professor Sagan is also the author of many uh, scholarly articles. Scott Sagan is also a distinguished teacher at Stanford. He received Stanford's 1996 Hoagland Prize for undergraduate teaching and the 1998 Dean's Award for, Dist for Distinguished Teaching. As part of the Center for International Security and Cooperation's mission to train the next generation of security specialists, in 2000, Sagan helped found Stanford's Inter-School inter Honors Program in International Security Studies. Our last speaker is Christopher Chiba. Christopher Chiba is a professor in Stanford's Department of Geological and Environmental Sciences and, with Scott Sagan, co-director of the Center for International Security and Cooperation. He also holds the Carl Sagan Chair for the Study of Life in the Universe at the SETI Institute in Mountain View, which is just a few miles from here. Professor Chiba is a graduate of Swarthmore College and holds a PhD in planetary science from Cornell University. Professor Chiba served on the White House staff from 1993 to 1995, entering as a White House Fellow and working on the National Security Council staff and then in the National Security Division of the Office of Science and Technology Policy. He later drafted the President's Directive on Responding to Emerging Infectious Diseases and wrote a report on preparing for biological terrorism. In 1996, Chris Treiber received the Presidential Early Career Award for, quote, demonstrating exceptional potential for leadership at the frontiers of science and technology during the 21st century. As a planetary scientist, Professor Treiber has published widely. He chaired the science definition team for NASA's Europa Orbiter mission, which is a mission to search for an ocean beneath the icy crust of Jupiter's moon, Europa. He also served on the executive committee of NASA's Space Science Advisory Committee, for which he chaired the Solar System Exploration Subcommittee. He currently chairs the National Academy of Sciences Committee on Preventing the Forward Contamination of Mars. Professor Chiba's security-related research focuses on biological terrorism, nuclear proliferation, and nuclear weapons policy. He has published in Foreign Affairs and other leading journals and recently co-authored with Chaim Brown uh, on second-tier nuclear proliferation in the journal International Security. Chiba is on two National Academy committees dealing with security issues, the Committee for International Security and Arms Control, and the Committee on Advances in Technology and the Prevention of Their Application to Next Generation Biowarfare Threats. In part, in recognition that Professor Chaba is evidently two people, or at least has two distinguished concurrent careers, he was named the MacArthur Fellow in 2001. Here's how we'll proceed. Dr. Blix will talk for 40 minutes, uh, and, and then uh, Scott Sagan will talk for 10 minutes, and Professor Chiba for 10 minutes. I will give each of you warnings at about five minutes, and then I'll give you another warning uh, just before. Um, and then we'll open it up for discussion. Dr. Blix, welcome.
Professor Lin, uh, ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to be with you as the chairman of the International Commission on Weapons of Mass Destruction. I'm pleased to place some of my thoughts before you. And uh, I'm happy to have Bill Perry, who is a valued member of our commission in the room, and have listened to him. The question before this panel is, are we going to have a new nuclear arms race? My short answer is no but. After the Second World War, during the Cold War, and during the beginning of the detente, a treaty-based, uneven, and in part fragile fabric of arms control and disarmament disarmament and for collective security was slowly built up by the states of the world with much leadership provided by the United States. It's clear that there is no further weaving on this fabric at the present time. Work on arms control and disarmament has largely stopped. The U.S. as the only military superpower after the end of the Cold War seems to have found the fabric in many parts too thin and in other parts an obstacle to its interests. The opening sentence in the recently published National Defense Strategy of the U.S. states that America is a nation at war. And there is no doubt that the document expresses the view of the current administration. President Bush has said that 9-11 was the Pearl Harbor of the Third World War, and Vice President Cheney has talked about a war going on for generations. The new defense strategy starts from the premise that the U.S., and I quote it, will have no global peer competitor, unquote, and states that the end of the Cold War, that the end of the Cold War and the U.S., now I quote, capacity to influence global events open the prospects for a new and peaceful state system in the world. While the defense strategy explains that the U.S. will, quote, retain a resilient network of alliances and partnerships, unquote, and that it will work with them to resolve regional crises and conflicts. It makes nowhere any mention of the UN or any other international organization of states. The only exception is a sentence to the effect that the legal arrangements should, legal arrangements should provide, I quote, protections against transfers of U.S. personnel to the International Criminal Court. This is the only reference I can find to the international treaty system. Now, it is clear that the U.S. government is continuing to strengthen its already considerable military capacity to influence the global events. The new defense strategy explains, and the world is watching, how the U.S. is now creating a global system of main operating bases, of forward operating sites, and an array of more austere cooperating security locations, within, with which in combination with a powerful system for fast transport of troops, will be able to take action wherever deemed needed in the world. The world is also aware that huge resources are spent by the U.S. in the effort to build a shield against incoming missiles, allegedly only such that might be sent from rogue states, but perceived by many as a means by which the U.S. would be enabled to strike anywhere in the world without being deterred by a risk of missile counterattack. Last but least, not, not least, in this brief enumeration, the world is listening to the wishes of the U.S. Defense Department to pursue new studies of nuclear weapons and the interest that is expressed by some in new nuclear tests. With the U.S. laying aside or at least downgrading the old fabric of security, will the rest of the world join it? 
Will some other states feel that the new and peaceful system which the U.S. seems intent to build is not a system which is owned in common, but one directed from one powerful state? Will they think that it may have some salutary results, but also pose risks to their, their interest in independence? Will they feel that although the old fabric is clearly deficient in places and unfinished, it is nevertheless one in which they have a part and which is woven through patient cooperation? Lastly, will the U.S. new policies and actions move some to strengthen their armaments? Will there be arms races? I think not. It takes two to tango, and it takes at least two to create an arms race. Currently, at any rate, we see only the United States racing itself, and I wonder for how long. After the alleged WMD programs in Iraq proved to be empty threats in 2003, I doubt that over time the public will in the U.S. can be sustained to pay huge arms bills unless threats evoked materialize into significant actions. If states in the world move sensibly to better address some current issues of political conflict by diplomacy and to pay more attention to the development of social, and just, social justice, there is, in my view, good hope that this combined with international cooperation between police, intelligence, and financial institutions will lead to less terrorism. If so, I think it will be hard to pursue a lonely arms race for, war, for a war against terrorism. Issues of nuclear and missile proliferation are currently raised by the DPRK and Iran. Although it's hard to assess diplomatic negotiations from a distance, my impression is that the issues ought to be manageable. Attitudes which are colonialist in style, threatening in tone, will make such solutions more difficult. There should not be demands for prepayment for carrots and security. These elements should be made available simultaneously with, with payment by Iraq and DPRK in the form of elimination of dangerous hardware and acceptance of intrusive inspection. If these two cases of Iran and DPRK were to be taken care of, we should need to feel much less concern about the issue of proliferation. Contrary to what some think, seem to think, the world is not milling with would-be proliferators. The U.S. has been urging Europe to spend more on arms, and I doubt very much that the Europeans will. Europeans no longer feel a need for armies to keep each other at bay, and Russia is no longer seen as a threat requiring strong territorial defense. In many European countries, the role of armed forces is now seen to be participation in the UN or other peacekeeping operations rather than territorial defense. China's efforts to modernize its aging military equipment as greater economic resources become available are not seen, in Europe at any rate, as ominous at the present time. Many see it as vital to involve and engage China in the modern global fabric of trade, finance, and other cooperation, rather than keeping it at arm's length. As to Russia, some in Europe think, as I do, that moving NATO listening posts, posts and radar up to Russia's borders with the new NATO members might lead to the risk of a nationalist backlash in Russia, rather than to increased international security. At the end of my paper, I shall focus briefly on the risk presented by the issues of the shield, Taiwan and space domination and, a nuclear, and new nuclear arms. 
Now, of this short answer, no but, question of an arms race, I would like to look at the question in a broader and a longer perspective. A basic question, and a classical one, is how we do we achieve necessary change within countries and between countries without the use of armed force and war. Within states, much change can be achieved through laws adopted by a majority vote. It does not always work. Sometimes there is civil war, as we saw in Yugoslavia. Between states, change may also be brought about by peaceful means or by force of war. Not long ago, Czechoslovakia divided into the Czech Republic and Slovakia, but Yugoslavia broke up in war. However, when peaceful change or common action is sought between states, it is not voted into being. Agreement, consent, is required. There is no world assembly which can adopt world law and achieve change or other action by a majority vote. There are a few exceptions. Each member state of the UN has explicitly accepted the charter, including Article 25, under which they are bound by and obliged to carry out decisions of the Security Council on an array of matters, including economic sanctions and the use of force. Their individual consent is not needed, and decisions can be taken by only nine votes out of 15, provided, however, that none of the five permanent members cast a negative vote. Lately, this competence of the Council has been used to adopt the binding resolution, the 1514, through which all members are obliged to, adopt national, to oblige to adopt national legislation, making it illegal for any person to develop weapons of mass destruction. The Council might be seen in this, kind, in this case as a kind of international legislator, adopting rules binding for all member states, whether they consent or not. However, these are exceptions. The, the rule is consent and consensus. You might say that the UN is like an orchestra. The same thing applies to other members of the UN system. If there is nothing wrong with the instrument, if there is nothing wrong with the instrument, no music will result even so. If the musicians cannot find a common tune, or for the matter, if the first violinist will not take part. I should add that the Secretary-General is not a conductor, but a friend, knowledgeable on music and advising the players. If any one of the instruments are defect, they may be repaired or modified. New strings may be fixed, deficient ones may be removed, but only efforts to play in harmony will bring music. Now, as we know, the difficulty of achieving agreement between states, coupled with the considerable military resources, led only too often to threats and the use of force, mostly regarding the control of territory. Machiavelli, lived in this 15th, living in the 15th century, wrote that, and I quote, that war is just, which is necessary, and every sovereign entity may decide on the occasion for war. Deterrent military force, alliance, balance of power, had been and remain means of averting and preventing war. Mad, mutually assured destruction through a nuclear exchange may be seen as the ultimate, yet uncertain, deterrent to avoid war. As states have become more interdependent and weapons have become ever more destructive, the public and governments, while maintaining the traditional means of averting war, have pursued three other approaches. First, avoiding armed conflict through mediation or other peaceful means and deterring the use of force by collective security arrangements under which any aggression would risk meeting overwhelming international sanctions, military or economic. Secondly, limiting the destruction and suffering brought by war through 
common humanitarian law, rules regarding warfare, and rules prohibiting the use of specific odious weapons. And third, bringing about arms control and disarmament to reduce tensions, to avoid arms races, to increase mutual confidence, and to eliminate, particular, eliminate particularly destructive or odious means or means of warfare. The efforts made after the First World War to achieve disarmament and to eliminate the use of armed force of aggression were unsuccessful. There were only 20 years between the end of the First War and the beginning of the Second World War. Since the end of the Second World War, we have now had about 60 years without any world conflagration. Most of the time was spent in Cold War, much of it in arms races, some of it in global detente. Perhaps the main credit for this long peaceful period should be given to the policy of containment, including the deterrent effect of arms, to balance power, greater interdependence, and during the last 15 years, detente. However, let me focus for a moment on what was meant by to be the security system of the UN, the recipe given to the world by the United States and many others here in San Francisco to prevent war. Members accept the prohibition, the prohibition to use force or the threat of use force against the territorial integrity and political independence of the other states. In case that rule was violated, the Security Council was authorized to determine that the violation had taken place, Council was to determine this, and to decide on economic and military measures to counter the aggression and to restore peace. To function, this collective security system of the UN rested on the cooperation between the five permanent members of the Council. And as we know, the Council during the Cold War, the veto power of the P5 mostly ensured a paralysis of this system. States had to seek their security as before in national defense, deterrence and alliances. Nevertheless, despite the Cold War, much was attained by agreement inside and outside the UN. I won't give any examples, but the changes of the law of the sea that have redrafted the maps of the oceans, of course, is one of them, and a good number of arms control and disarmament agreements as well, starting with the uh, partial test ban and the MPT. Now, around 1990, the Cold War ended. The Soviet Empire dissolved, the global ideological competition disappeared, and in the following years, detente made a great deal of new international agreement possible which until then had been under unattainable. We got the Chemical Weapons Convention entered into force, and we got the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, voted, negotiated and voted, and the veto was no longer to be assumed in the Security Council, where many new peacekeeping operations were agreed. When the troops of Saddam Hussein marched into Kuwait in 1990, President Bush the Elder, with much skill, organized an alliance of both Arab and non-Arab states, and with the authorization of the Security Council, the Gulf War was launched, and the aggressor was ousted from Kuwait. President Bush spoke about a new international order. There was general euphoria that the UN Charter Prohibition on the use of force had been enforced, and that at long last the system for collective security worked. Through the UN, the UN-authorized UN intervention in Iraq, it was seen through this operation, it was seen what detente, cooperation, and the notion of collective security could achieve. However, through the IEA inspectors who went into Iraq after the ceasefire, it was also discovered that Iraq, a party to the NPT and committed not to get nuclear weapons, had in fact an advanced program for the enrichment of uranium and for the production of nuclear weapons. Later, UNSCOM inspectors 
brought evidence of a significant program on biological weapons. These discoveries could not but shake the confidence in the reliability of the NPT and the safeguards verification system, which was meant to deter from illicit nuclear activities and detect cheating. And when in the same period, the earliest IE inspections in North Korea concluded that the DPRK had not declared all the plutonium it had produced, the question was inevitably asked whether the NPT was full of holes. Was the world being lulled into full confidence? Work started to bring about a significant strengthening of the IAEA safeguards inspections, efforts which led in 1997 to the adoption of new protocols for more effective inspections. Nevertheless, the events seem to have weakened the U.S. dedication to global arms control regimes. In the same period, there was something else of great significance. The U.S. became the world's only military superpower. Not surprisingly, ideas emerged in the U.S. about less reliance on treaty regimes and the inspection systems linked to them, and greater reliance on U.S. own capability, a policy of active counterproliferation. The concept is not, and was not, I think, terribly well defined, but it certainly comprised options of the use of force to destroy existing or nascent weapons or mass destruction capabilities, if necessary, through the regime changes. The Israeli bombing raid destroying the Osirak reactor in Iraq in 1998 might have been seen as an example, although it was condemned at the time by the United States. The Iraq war starting in March 2003 may perhaps be seen as a counter-proliferation action, although it had undoubtedly a number of other, perhaps even more important purposes. The many years during which Saddam Hussein was able to play cat and mouse with inspectors presumably further eroded the U.S. confidence that inspections and international economic sanctions directed by the Security Council could ever bring credible assurance about the absence of weapons of mass destruction. The situation was not seen to be any better in the DPRK, where the rights of access to IA inspectors was severely limited. The U.S. further suspected that although IA inspectors in the 1990s did not uncover any violations of safeguards agreements, Iran obtained nuclear weapons useful technology and know-how within the cooperation program with Russia for the construction of the power plants in Bushra. This is what was suspected on the U.S. side, and many demarches were made to the Russians about it. Although the reality seems to have been that the enrichment technology was not imported from Russia, but through Mr. Khan's bazaar, and that barking up the Russian tree might have been unjustified, the Iran case must have contributed to U.S. skepticism and reservations about the treaty-based IEA monitored, monitored non-proliferation system. Most countries in the world saw the detente after the Cold War, Cold War winter uh, as springtime, so saw the detente as springtime and even hardest time for global cooperation, not least in arms control and disarmament. The Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty was negotiated and there was strong support for it also among the U.S. military. An inspection and verification mechanism for the Convention on Biological Weapons was slowly put together. Bilateral U.S.-Russian agreements were made to reduce Russian stocks of highly enriched uranium and about the disposal of redundant plutonium, with some IEA involvement. There was every expectation that an agreement would be possible in a cut-off of the production of fissile material for weapons purposes. However, as the U.S. military superiority continued to grow, U.S. faith in global arms control and disarmament agreements was shrinking. Senate rejection of the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty 
was a wake-up call to an outside world that had been accustomed to a U.S. leading and, prom US leading and promoting the creation of treaty regimes in support of global security. With the new administration taken over in, in 2001, attitudes which were discerned earlier became more visible and have since evolved in U into U.S. doctrines and positions in which, as I have explained, U.S. military strength supported by willing allies are to provide order and security while universal cooperative systems and the order of the UN Charter, which the UN Charter seeks to establish, seem to be relegated into the background. Now, can the new order, which is planned, be reconciled with the old UN order? A few words about that, further words about that rule of the UN system. Article 51 of the Charter recognizes two exceptions to the general principle prohibiting the use of force. Now, the first is that for, force, is use, uh, force can be used in the inherent right of self-defense when an armed attack occurs, as is prescribed in Article 51. And secondly, second exception is that force authorized by the Security Council in the face of a threat to the peace, breach of the peace, or act of aggression is possible. It has been fairly generally recognized that the right of self-defense extends to situations where attacks have not yet actually taken place but are taken to be imminent, that's to say, for instance, against bombers or neighbors on their way. After the horrendous terror acts of 9-11, the U.S. national security doctrine of 2002 showed the U.S. would assume freedom for itself to take armed action in anticipatory self-defense. The doctrine arg argued that in the era of covert terrorist actions, allowing self-defense only when an attack was imminent was insufficient. The United States cannot remain idle while dangers gather. There was not a word about the rules in the UN Charter and the possibility of asking a Security Council authorization prior to the use of force. Now, while especially after 9-11, the argument that a government cannot sit and wait for a terror attack to occur or become imminent, but will have to attack to prevent, have to act to prevent the attack is understandable. The Iraq War in 2003 demonstrated how poor assessments of a threat led to a war to ensure the elimination of weapons of mass destruction, which did not exist. Does the U.S. government at present recognize any legal restriction on the use of force by itself, any restriction in international law? I doubt it. At the present recent publication, as the recent publication of the British Attorney General's advice to the UK government has shown, there are great differences in the British and the US views on this matter. And in the view of Mr. Bolton, who is now nominated to become the next US ambassador to the UN, I quote him, he says, our actions taken consistently with constitutional principles require no separate external validation to make them legitimate. Whether it is removing a rogue Iraqi regime or replacing it, preventing weapons of mass destruction, or prevent protecting Americans against an unacceptable court, he talks about the ICC, the United States will utilize its institutions of representative government and adhere to its constitutional stricture. No external uh, rules are recognized by him. President Bush seems to have taken a slightly more cautious approach in holding the U.S. use of force legitimate against growing threats. The national defense strategy, is, which I cited a while ago, is devoid of references to any, any legal restrictions or, for that matter, any references to the UN Charter. 
And in talking about gathering threats, it takes the same line as President Bush, understandably. Now, where are the gathering threats? In an article in the Financial Times recently, it reported that the U.S. intelligence community was drawing up a secret watch list of 25 countries where instability might precipitate U.S. intervention. And I saw in the newspaper the other day a report from the United Press that the U.S. military has outlined plans to allow commanders in the Japan region to request permission to carry out preemptive nuclear strikes from the president. The paper identifies nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons as requiring preemptive strikes to prevent their use. So the growing threats could be a fairly wide array of things. When it comes to the possible reference to the Security Council of matters which might lead to the use of sanctions, including authorizations for the use of force, it is hard to guess where the U.S. government is leaning. On the one hand, the administration of President George W. Bush let it be known in 2003 that the Security Council would be seen as irrelevant if it did not vote for a resolution authorizing the war against Iraq. On the other hand, we see the U.S together with France, of all countries, jointly submitting resolutions to the Security Council on subjects like Haiti and Lebanon. What seems to emerge is a wish to retain the possibility to push for proposals in organizations like the UN and the IEA and to invoke treaty obligations such as obligations under the MPT, while at the same time retaining maximum freedom of action. The attitude to international agreements seems to me to be somewhat ambivalent. In a full-page article in the Financial Times last autumn, Mr. Bolton decried what he called cumbersome treaty bureaucracies and lauded the Proliferation Security Initiative, which is an activity, not an organization. He wrote further that the U.S. was no longer lost in endless international negotiations, whose point seemed to be the negotiation rather than decision. The new national defense strategy, when talking about legal arrangements, suggests that many of the current ones date from an earlier era and that the new ones must, I quote, help not hinder the rapid deployment and employment of U.S. and coalition forces worldwide in, crisis, in a crisis, unquote. In an interview, Mr. Raidmaker, Assistant Secretary for Arms Control, is reported to have said recently that the famous 13 steps agreed at the latest NPT review conferences were products of their era, suggesting that they will not be reaffirmed. Now, there is nothing extraordinary about any country trying to use international organizations to its advantage and to denounce them or ignore them where they are seen as obstacles. However, in my view, an ideology driven by aversion to international organization and to the use of treaties, if there is such an ideology, is doomed to disappear. It will also be surprising if in the longer run the U.S., which is the first country to explain to emerging states the value of reliable law and public institutions, if the U.S. should on some ideological ground fail to see the necessity of law and institutions at the international level. So who might tango in an arms race together with the U.S.? I return to the terrorists. Terrorists have shown little inclination so far thank God, to use unconventional weapons. Why should they when it was shown that the newly, newly trained pilots and box cutters were the main tools needed for the most atrocious and spectacular terrorist acts which the world has seen? 
Nevertheless, I agree that ex improved export controls, more effective accountancy at the national level regarding material equipment are desirable and require more international cooperation. There are a lot of measures that have been taken, are being taken, and need to be taken in this area. The most important means to use against terrorism are rather well identified. Cooperation within and among states between police, intelligence, and financial institutions. A united stand of states within international organizations and efforts to bring about development and to solve social and ethical problems are also of vital importance. In this struggle, and among the measures, of course, I think there is a need also to retain a sense of proportion. We had a scare about the smallpox uh, two years ago, I think, and uh, in our Unmovik, we were not quite certain whether Iraq might have retained some vial of smallpox. There was a big public debate both in the US and the UK about wide-scale vaccination. Eventually, it didn't take place. The proportion of such a measure, of course, would have been uh, questionable in relation to the, the, the doubtfulness of, of the threat. Uh, Large-scale vaccinations would have cost an enormous amount, but it would also cost lives and people who had, had fallen ill from, as a result. So one would have to weigh the consequences of these countermeasures. Now, is there, what about the rogue states? I have noted, uh, as I have noted, a close look at the world does not suggest to me more than the four long-identified cases of concern, the usual suspects, and two of the four are no longer of concern. Iraq and Libya are not. Which other states do raise fears? Syria? No, I think not. Saudi Arabia? I think not. And Egypt? No, I think not. In the current gloom about the MPT, it might well be well to remember that it has been achieved, what it has, that it has achieved, the adherence and verified implementation by a large number of states which might have had the ability to move to a weapons program. The most notable cases and recent success had regard to, as Bill Perry mentioned, Ukraine, Belarusia, and Kazakhstan. It's not the objective of my paper to discuss what is sometimes characterized as loopholes in the treaty, the withdrawal clause and the absence of any prohibition of the enrichment of uranium. Rather, the question before this forum is whether there is a risk that any of the states of concern will cause an arms race. In my view, the general ban on further enrichment or reprocessing in the world uh, does, little, the, the, does little to um, solve the problems raised by the programs of the DPRK in Iran. As you are aware, there have been proposals that there should be a ban for at least for a year or for several years on building more enrichment plants and reprocessing plants in the world. This, I think, is more like the generals fighting the past, past war uh, and that it will not have much of an influence on Iran or on the DPRK. Similarly, the Proliferation Security Initiative, the non-treaty-based activity of which Mr. Bolton talked, which may make some interceptions possible at sea, seem to me to be more spectacular and significant. I'm not negative to it, but I think that its importance is, is all not, not that obvious. There is little doubt that if the DPRK were to move further, notably by detonating a nuclear device, there could be a risk in due course of a domino effect in the region. And just as Iraq's nuclear program must have once concerned Iran, so Iran's nuclear program must now concern both Iraq and Israel. The long-range missile capabilities are contagious and do or will provoke protective measures. That this seems clear. 
tailor-made solutions are sought, both with the DPRK and Iran. And I might add to what I said about such solutions, that in both cases, they might need to contain some guarantee about outside attacks. Just as we talk about negative security guarantees to induce states not to acquire nuclear weapons, some guarantees against attacks if states walk away from an option may be needed, both in the case of North Korea, which has talked about a non-aggression pact, and in the case of Iran, where there's been less, less talk about it. But the risk that a country that sees threats being brandished all the time, that all the options are on the table all the time, may perhaps draw the undesirable conclusion that they are better armed themselves against such threats. It would not need, I don't think the non-aggression pact would be needed in North Korea. One might simply confirm obligations contained in the Charter Article 2, Paragraph 4, which prohibits the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity of states. Solutions might be made easier also in both cases, North Korea and the Middle East, if they were, if they were laid down in the framework of a zonal treaty. Now, in the Middle East, it, time is not ready for a zone free of weapons of mass destruction, which has been on the table for many years and supported both by Israel and by the other states. But perhaps time might be ready for a zone, including Iran, Iraq, Israel, and Syria, and perhaps some, some other states, a zone free from enrichment and reprocessing facilities. On the Korean Peninsula, a zonal treaty comprising the two Korean states was already made once and could be revived. An array of economic measures would have to be included in both cases. As regards the DPRK, I submit that it might be wise to make the economic part of the package attractive by constructing it in a way that would help that country to gradually exit without implosion from the system that has brought it to misery and starvation. And in fact, North Korea has been taken a number of steps in, in the direction of a more Chinese model, perhaps after Mr. Kim Jong-il's visits to China, several visits to China. Now, what about the nuclear weapon states and, and an arms race? While relations between the U.S. and Russia and China are relatively relaxed, there are, I would think, some areas in which they are probably already, they already respond to U.S. arms developments. They probably hope that the construction of the U.S. anti-missile shield will fail technically, but they will hardly believe the U.S. claim that it is only intended as a protection against missiles from rogue states. I think one must assume that they will take measures which the U.S. would have to interpret as possibly maintaining the risk of a second strike. Another area is space. With so much modern so much of modern warfare being dependent upon satellites, it is evident that the protection of one's own satellites and the destruction of an enemy's satellites will be a military interest, and that competition in this area, whether, uh, whether we call it a race or not, is inevitable. And the third point relates to testing of nuclear weapons, the production, design, and testing of nuclear weapons. If this were to move on, I think it is highly probable uh, in the, if they were to take place in the U.S., it's highly probable that it also will be following in other states. There will be new test, testing of weapons. Now, wars used mostly to be about territory or ideology. Today, the great powers have no territorial claims on one another. All recognize the market economy of various shades and shapes as the economically most productive model. And they, they may even be moving at various paces towards more democratic or at least more representative systems of government. 
what would they fight about? It is not hard to see that the growing power of China is worrying the U.S. and considered in strategic security terms. I don't think that the fight with the Europeans about export of arms is so much about Tiananmen Square as about the future power in, in the Pacific. A point of friction that could become explosive, if not handled wise, is of course the status of Taiwan. There are, however, other important factors that will speak strongly in favor of a peaceful evolution between the great powers. There is not going to be a lack of frictions in the world in the future. There will surely be civil wars and there will be some regional armed conflict. But there is no doubt nowadays such a degree of interdependence that the con continents and the great powers can hardly rip themselves apart. And we cannot do without rules, common rules of international law or joint organizations. We need them to, to fight SARS, avian flu, and also to keep the financial and trade system going. Let me end by saying that I am more worried about the risks of global warming in the next century than I am about the arms races in this century. Thank you. Okay. Okay. okay, can you get, get it up? Uh, how do I get the slideshow going? That? To your slideshow? Yeah. Okay. Great. Is it up now? Okay, great. Um, I'm a great admirer of Hans Blix and the contributions that he's made to global security through both his uh, position at the IAEA and his head UN inspector position for Iraq. But I'm also pleased for the sake of a lively conference that he's given a provocative talk with which there is much to agree and much to disagree with as well. I'm sure that other panels today, for example, Steve Stedman and Sharintira Kelly and Adam Thompson, will want to debate his views on the United Nations. And I'm sure Phil Zellico from the State Department will want to comment on his statement that the attitude of the Bush administration towards international agreements seems ambivalent. I instead will confine my brief remarks to three areas in which I have disagreements with his assessment that we need not worry about a nuclear arms race. For in all three of the areas I will discuss, I think there already is a new and different kind and very dangerous arms race going on. To save time, under the principle that a picture is worth a thousand words, I will use some pictures. So if you could put up the first picture as a way of getting more uh, words into a brief presentation. The first area is North Korea. Dr. Blix said that while it's hard to assess diplomatic negotiations from a distance, my impression is that the issue should be manageable and place a great deal of importance on a security guarantee from the United States and potentially others to the North Koreans. I fear, however, that it is too late now. For after the axis of evil speech, and after the United States invaded Iraq without UN authorization, how could someone sitting in Pyongyang trust a guarantee, even if the administration was willing to give it unequivocally, even if it was given under some kind of UN auspices? Indeed, recent social science done here at Stanford um, has suggested that it becomes more difficult rather than easier 
for states to commit themselves to promises when they have strong military power. Counterintuitively, the stronger you are, the more another state will fear that you're going back down from the promise that you have made, what political scientist Todd Sexer has called the hegemon's curse. Given the overwhelming military power the United States possesses, given statements made by this administration, indeed, it's interesting that the administration often will say it is not obligated to honor the commitments that previous administrations have made. How can it then believe that commitments that it might make about a security guarantee could be believed by other states fearing United States power? We also know that the North Koreans have all the materials necessary to make the bomb, which makes me at least take their claim that they have complete nuclear weapons now very, very seriously. What you see here is a picture of CSAC founding co-director John Lewis and Siegfried Hecker from the Los Alamos National Laboratory at the Yongbyon reactor last year on a CSAC project in which they were shown the empty uh, fuel ponds showing that they had taken the spent fuel out of the reactor spent fuel ponds. And they were then shown at lunch that day pieces of the final product of the reprocessing plant that is the actual plutonium, plutonium metal for nuclear warheads. Is there an arms race on the Korean Peninsula? Yes, there is, in a bizarre and different way. North Korea is racing ahead with its own persistent and provocative nuclear program to get more plutonium to build more nuclear devices. And each time that they increase the size of their arsenal, it increases both the likelihood that they will test a nuclear device, which may come soon, if you read today's New York Times, or they may be bluffing, the likelihood that they will actually want to test increases as they move forward with a larger and larger arsenal. And every time they build additional nuclear weapons, it increases the likelihood that someone in this desperately poor regime, which currently props itself up with missile sales, drug smuggling, and currency counterfeiting, will someday sell a nuclear weapon to the highest bidder, even if that bidder is Osama bin Laden or one of his successors. So why support the six-party talks? I fear that military containment may be our fate, and a fate that's highly uncertain. And that leads to my second disagreement. I think Dr. Blix's paper greatly underestimates the nuclear terrorism threat today. You said, Hans, that terrorists have shown little inclination so far to use unconventional weapons. On the contrary, I believe they've displayed considerable inclination. They have not detonated a nuclear weapon or a dirty bomb, but that's not because of lack of interest. In 1998, Osama bin Laden declared that it was a religious duty for al-Qaeda members to get nuclear weapons. Evidence that he instigated more than one unsuccessful effort to acquire materials were discovered in Afghanistan, and documents discussing nuclear weapons design and outlining how to make a crude device were found in the Kabul home of a senior al-Qaeda official. Al-Qaeda's nuclear ambitions, however, did not vanish when bin Laden vanished from the caves in Tora Bora. Indeed, as recently as January this year, 2005, two alleged al-Qaeda operatives were arrested in Germany and charged with attempting to purchase highly enriched uranium in Luxembourg. It's unlikely, therefore, that this foiled attempt in January 2005 to acquire nuclear materials for al-Qaeda will be the last one. And many of us fear that the war in Iraq, even if it is successful, 
in leaving behind a stable government there, which is a big if, has created a new generation of jihadi war veterans who will spread back to their homes and their adopted countries the way that al-Qaeda did after the war in Afghanistan. It's important to keep in mind that other types of terrorist groups have coveted nuclear weapons or materials in the past and are likely to do so in the future. In this picture, you see Ayum Shinrikyo, the Japanese millenarian terrorist organization that sought to acquire nuclear weapons but had to settle for chemical, sarin, and biological anthrax weapons, both of which it used in terrorist attacks in Tokyo when its nuclear ambitions were thwarted. A little-known fact is that the Bader-Meinhof gang, seen in the lower left, attempted to steal nuclear weapons from a U.S. military base in Western Europe in the late 1970s, an attack that many people believe was aided by the East German intelligence. In the United States, members of the radical Christian organization, Covenant Arm and the Sword, have sought weapons of mass destruction to hasten the apocalypse. As one member, Kerry Noble, his book is on the right, put it, one grows tired of waiting for God to do his will. Is this an arms race? Yes, it is, but of a very different sort. It is a race between the terrorists seeking to steal nuclear materials or even weapons and the national and international efforts to stop that. It is a race that is both a sprint to address the most pressing problems immediately and it is a race that must be a marathon because it is going to continue for a long time giving, given the spread of nuclear materials around the world and given the spread of terrorists around the world. It will require much deeper international cooperative actions that I'm sure Dr. Chaiba will be uh, mentioning in his remarks momentarily. And the third and last area of disagreement is on the race to stop the smuggling of uranium centrifuge technology. Hans Blitz placed great faith in UN Security Resolution 1540, which, as he correctly noted, is a binding resolution de demanding that all states in the United Nations must have effective export control procedures in place governing nuclear materials. But I and others working on a new CSAC project on Security Resolution 1540 fear that UN efforts to constrain nuclear smuggling will be much harder than we imagine, both because of the inherent scope and complexity of the problem and because the role that governments and government insiders, not just external terrorist organizations, have played in the past and may play in the future. The talk mentioned the AQCon network only one time in this paper with respect to sales to Iran. But as the picture and PowerPoint chart here shows, the AQCon network from the KRL, the Khan Research Laboratory, exported uranium enrichment technology and bomb design. We know both of those to Libya. We know the enrichment technology uh, to Iran. He has confessed to doing it to North Korea. We don't know where else he's sent the bomb design. Saudi Arabia, Syria, Egypt. Let me conclude here by just noting 
that the official Pakistani argument is that the military security officers in charge of the KRL were co-opted. And yet there is a culture of, of co-optation, a, a culture that permits people in Pakistan to accept corruption that's quite stunning. It's not common. I don't remember Oppenheimer having multiple mansions spread around the country. And if you look at this KRL uh, official sales brochure that was sent out for their vacuum tubes, you will see in the side a large-scale missile being displayed, a nuclear-capable missile. If this was a secret operation, it was a pretty transparent secret operation to many inside Pakistan. I'll conclude here just by noting that there are therefore three arms races, at least, of very different sorts that we're engaged in today. And it leads me to a more pessimistic conclusion that led Hans Blix. Thank you. Good morning. I'm in the uh, unhappy position this morning of following Secretary Perry, Hans Blix, and Scott Sagan speaking to this same topic of looking ahead, uh, is there a, a new nuclear arms race? I think I would like to close this session by first stepping back and re-examining what might cause such an arms race. But to address that, I think it first might be useful to step even a bit further back and, and remind us all of where the world stands currently with respect to nuclear weapons. Non-governmental estimates uh, suggest that there are currently about 30,000 nuclear weapons of all types in the world, of which the United States and Russia possess about 95%. Enough nuclear explosive material exists under military control to construct another 100,000 nuclear weapons and enough civilian uh, plutonium is available uh, to construct perhaps another 100,000 nuclear weapons. Secretary Perry noted earlier this morning that under the Moscow Treaty of 2002, by the end of 2012, the US and Russia will reduce their operationally deployed strategic offensive weapons to between 1,700 and 2,200 weapons. Given that treaty, I think that there's, a, there's very little chance that we would see a resumption of a nuclear arms race between Russia and the United States. And I say that despite President Putin's comments in November of 2004, in which he remarked that new research and testing are underway for new missile systems that he described as being unlike anything in other countries' arsenals. Uh, remarks and, indeed, uh, systems that may be intended uh, partly in response to the U.S. ballistic missile defense program but I think that our, it, it's hard to see this leading to a kind of new arms race uh, between the powers. The Moscow Treaty remains. Similarly, I think that despite fears of China's rise, it's unlikely that we would see a Cold War-like nuclear arms race with China. I don't think that China wants to play that game. It's slowly modernizing its nuclear arsenal, uh, but it, it maintains a small deterrent of only hundreds of warheads, perhaps only uh, a couple... Uh, a couple dozen uh, missiles that can reach the United States, and I think it's likely that it will continue to see that minimal deterrent as sufficient for its security. In fact, I would suggest that one measure of how different 
the situation we are in with respect to China now is from the situation we were in with respect to the Soviet Union during the Cold War is, uh, is illustrated by their October 2003 human spaceflight when they launched their first Taikonaut into outer space on the Shenzhou capsule. I'd suggest that, that China chose, uh, has chosen the human spaceflight program exactly as a way of demonstrating their technological prowess, of kind of making an assertion of their status as a power in the world while minimizing the chances of evoking a security response from the United States. A very different use of human spaceflight, I think, than in the early Cold War. So it's hard for me to see how a great power's nuclear arms race could resume, and I agree with Dr. Blix in, in this assessment. I also agree with him, however, that resumption of nuclear testing could well lead, I think would almost certainly lead, to a kind of cascade of, uh, of nuclear testing among the, uh, among the nuclear powers. But if instead we understand a, a nuclear arms race, an arms race to be the competitive buildup of armaments by actors in a potential conflict that proceeds in a kind of action-reaction spiral, then the potential nuclear arms race, race with which I think we actually need to concern ourselves now is exactly nuclear proliferation. The possibility that more and more countries would build nuclear weapons in response to others' nuclear weapons acquisitions, again, a kind of catalytic effect, and the opportunities for miscalculation or perhaps uh, terrorism, uh, that is to say, access of terrorists to weapons, that, that could follow. Dr. Blix suggested that contrary to what, seemed to think, what some seem to think, the world is not milling with would-be proliferators. And I think he's right to emphasize the dangers of pessimistic predictions or apocalyptic predictions about our nuclear proliferation future. And such predictions are famous, uh, perhaps most famously, President John Kennedy in his March 1963 news conference suggested that by 1975 there could be 15 or 20 nuclear uh, powers. Uh, that number changed in different statements from the Kennedy administration. It reached as high as 25. Uh, but of, so, so such predictions have been made in the past, but of course it is in part exactly because we had those fears that we took the measures and constructed the international regime that has prevented us from living in a world of 25 or more nuclear powers today. So, in particular, currently, in, in keeping with the action-reaction pattern of an arms race, I do worry about the catalytic effect of even one or two more countries going nuclear. And both Dr. Blix and Scott Sagan have already spoken this morning about the possible such effects from either North Korea or, or Iran uh, becoming more explicit, uh, in the case of DPRK, becoming an explicit nuclear power, or Iran heading further in that direction. And Scott's already mentioned the disturbing New York Times article this morning uh, that uh, North Korea may be preparing for a nuclear test. It's difficult to predict what impact such a test would have on Japan, the Republic of Korea, or other countries. Uh, of course, we can't predict that, but obviously the preference would be not to find out. Let me step even further back. Uh, in addition to nuclear weapons issues at CSAC here within the the uh, Stanford Institute for International Studies, we spent a great deal of time also thinking about biological security issues, be it infectious disease, bioterrorism, or state bioweapons programs. And I think it's often clarifying to contrast the biological case and the nuclear case. In the biological realm, I believe we're entering a world because of the exponential, the literally exponential growth of biotechnology and it's spread for very good reasons around the world, reasons of public health and food security, 
we're entering a world where enormous power is going to become available to small groups of the technically competent in thousands and thousands of laboratories throughout the world. And we've already had very strong signs, signs of that. My own view is that that is unstoppable and that we are essentially going to have to learn to cope with, learn to live with the world in which that kind of power is widely distributed. That is not a world we are largely going to shape. It is a world we are going to have to learn to live within. That is not what we ever want to confront in the nuclear realm. We want to continue to shape our nuclear future, not merely cope with it. We want to keep the nuclear realm as different as we can in this respect from the biological realm. And that's why I think it's so important, for example, that the AQCon nuclear smuggling network was shut down and that we prevent other such networks from arising and why UN Security Council Resolution 1540 is potentially so important if it can, if it can uh, be brought to, be, uh, to effective implementation. And it also, of course, is why preserving the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty is so important. In a recent study, a uh, joint study between CSAC, Princeton, and other uh, arms control uh, and security centers uh, titled Preventing Nuclear Proliferation and Nuclear Terrorism, we've proposed seven cooperative steps to reduce the availability of nuclear explosive materials throughout the world. You can find this report on our website here. Let it suffice for me to say that these steps are intended to increase the security of nuclear explosive material, that, that explosive material that exists, to stop the production of more of it, to make it harder to divert low-enriched uranium or reactor plutonium to weapons, and to have a global phase-out of civilian high-enriched uranium, among, among other, among other uh, cooperative steps. Uh, one wants to recognize that most of these steps have the effect of increasing the burden on the non-nuclear weapon states under the non-proliferation treaty regime. And for that and other reasons, I strongly agree with Dr. Blix that demand-side issues, as well as these sort of supply-side issues that speak to the supply of nuclear material, also need to be vigorously addressed. In fact, my fear is that we are slowly entering a world, not exponentially entering a world as we are in the case of biotechnologies, but in the nuclear realm, we are slowly entering a world in which supply-side steps are going to be less and less capable of controlling the spread of nuclear weapons technology. That is perhaps a lesson of the AQCon network, that technologies are slowly becoming more available to nations in the developing world, nations that are not among the traditional nuclear powers and have not been captured by the traditional regime, regimes such as the Nuclear Suppliers Group. Again, why this new Security Council Resolu Resolution 1540 is so important if it, in fact, can be uh, implemented in a credible way. I don't intend this as technological determinism. Uh, that is to say, it is exactly the fear of this spread of technology that, needs, that we need to use to help us prevent this world from ever coming into being. And we want to use supply-side measures to stave off that world as long as we can. But we also, I think, need to think of using those measures as, a, as granting us a certain amount of time. We don't know how much time. But in the meantime, we need, we need to use the time we have available to work to reduce the demand for nuclear weapons. That includes, very importantly, attention to regional security issues, but it also implies to me that U.S. nuclear weapons strategy must always be made with the goal of nonproliferation as one of its foremost drivers. Thank you.
Howard LaFranchi with the uh, Christian Science Monitor. Uh, we're having this discussion while the uh, MPT review is going on in New York, and I'm wondering if uh, perhaps Mr. Blix, Mr. Sagan, or any of you could uh, 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 perhaps uh, share a little bit of what uh, what this review uh, might accomplish, and and then uh, or what you see as the the most uh, influential uh, actions that could be taken, and and then uh, prospects. Uh, you know, actual prospects for anything to take place uh, during this month-long review? Uh, well, I think that on, on one point I have a modest amount of optimism that has regard to the support for strength and IEA safeguards. The, uh, we started in 1991 to work out these new protocols and they were adopted in 97. The European Union and a large number of countries have adopted them, but a large number have not. And uh, there is discussion how you will go about it. I think there will be uh, some resistance among developing countries who will say that why should we do this when we feel that the US and the nuclear weapon states are doing so little. Uh, then there will be discussions about the, uh, the withdrawal clause, and I'm not sure that that will lead very far. The US, after all, withdrew from an important arms control treaty. And the clause that exists in the MPT is, is one that is similar in, other in many other treaties. Uh, it will, of course, always be open to a, any member of, of the UN to submit a withdrawal uh, by one state uh, to an important treaty to the Security Council. They don't need, necessarily need to change the MPT for that if they regard it as a threat to the peace, breach of the peace of, or, or, or uh, active aggression. So I, I feel somewhat doubtful that much will be accomplished on that score. A third proposal has had regard, as I mentioned, to the uh, freezing of any further enrichment facilities in the world to, to build that or reprocessing facilities. And as I said, I think this is a bit like fighting the, the last war, for the general to fight the last wars. If one had had such a ban in the past, maybe one could have stopped North Korea, one could have stopped Iran. But we are not there now. And I don't think that would be much greater chances to get the Iranians and the North Koreans to accept it. The only country in the world I know that is planning to build more enrichment plants is the United States. And that is in Louisiana. I have no particular objection to, to that. Uh, but I do think that such uh, projects could have a use in the case of the Korean Peninsula and in the case of the Middle East. And I mentioned that. I mean, it was an element in the agreement between North and South Korea in the beginning of the 90s. And neither of these countries should have have a Richmond plant. That goes beyond what the present MPT uh, requires. And in the Middle East, I don't, haven't seen any idea which I offered this morning, namely that maybe you could have a, an agreement between countries in the Middle East that they would not uh, possess any reprocessing or enrichment plants. Israel could keep its nuclear weapons. Uh, they will not do away with them, that's quite clear. But do they have a need for built to get in more plutonium or more enrich, highly enriched uranium? I, I doubt that. And if they are eager and if they are even considering using counterproliferation to knock out Iranian plants, would they not be able to consider the possibility of closing enrichment and plutonium? I'm somewhat pessimistic about the outcome, as most people are, about the MPT review conference, but I will not go into the larger issue, which was the central theme of my, of my, my, my speech. Maybe I'll come back to that, but I will limit myself to the, the answer to your question. Well, I'm, I'm similarly pessimistic in the fact that there's not even been an agreement on the agenda for the conference yet. 
even though they're at the end of the first week, is a, is a bad sign. I think the best that could be hoped for in an ideal world would be a, a joint moratorium. The nuclear states accepting and continuing the moratorium on testing for a certain period of time in exchange for the non-nuclear states having a moratorium on, on enrichment. But there isn't a consensus in that, uh, on that view uh, uh, at all right now. And therefore, if we can get out of this without the Iranians deciding to use this as an excuse to, uh, to restart their programs or the North Koreans using this as an excuse to testing, I think we'll, we'll be lucky. Um, I know that Dr. Stedman, who is the chief of the uh, high-level panel and has been at, in his new position as special assistant to Kofi Annan, has been involved with these issues. I don't know whether, Steve, you want to say something now or save it for uh, your, your panel this afternoon. to concur with, with both what Dr. Blix and what you've said, which is I think everybody at this point is absolutely uh, pessimistic that anything is going to come out of this month's review conference. Uh, no agenda. I mean, you might not even get a declaration, joint declaration at the end. Um, and from our perspective, uh, the perspective of the Secretary General, um, I think uh, in the event of the conference not producing any results, it is to once again go back and call attention to heads of state to say you've got an opportunity in September when there's going to be a heads of state summit in New York, uh, and maybe this is serious enough that you ought to uh, give it your own attention uh, and inform your people that this is something that you've really got to focus on because uh, it is, it is uh, a regime that I think is in deep trouble. Yeah. I would only add to these comprehensive comments that I had the, the pleasure of being at the review conference for, for the opening day, and I would like to suggest or urge members of the press and really all, everybody else to go to the web and, and read uh, the Secretary General's opening speech at the conference, which presented a kind of uh, catalog of all the major issues that really need to be addressed if the nuclear nonproliferation regime is to be preserved and strengthened. Uh, should the conference fail to address those issues, one needs to think about how one would proceed. But if, if you want, a, I think, a, a very clear statement of what the key issues are that challenge the regime, the Secretary General laid those down at the outset of the conference. I think I'm going to uh, break the usual way of uh, uh, we'd only have time for one more uh, question and then one round of response. So I'm actually going to ask everyone who's standing to, to succinctly make your comment or ask a question, and then we'll let the panelists respond to, to some part of that. So, Dean Wilkening at CSAC. I was going to ask Dr. Blix if he could shed some light on what Saddam Hussein was thinking in uh, failing to come clean with his weapons programs. I think many of us were surprised to find out that he had as little activity as later turned out to be the case because throughout the 90s he acted in a most suspicious manner, uh, divulged his biological program only with great reluctance in 95, kicks the inspectors out, et cetera. And since you've had considerable exposure, I thought maybe you could peer into his mind for us and help us understand why he did that. Thank you. Uh, I'm George Bunn. I want to uh, correct, if I may, <laughs> Dr. Hans Blick's a statement about the provision of the nonproliferation treaty dealing with withdrawal. 
you're quite correct in terms of the first withdrawal clause, which was in the limited test ban treaty. But the one in the nonproliferation treaty was significantly revised so that it is not true, as you suggested, at least it's, it's a lawyer's argument anyway, that it's not true that withdrawal can be taken, exercised and no one can do anything about it. Uh, the NPT withdrawal clause, and I've written pieces that are before the conference, and there's some debate in the, con- the NPT review conference about this, as a matter of fact. So far, whether anything will happen, I can't predict. But the withdrawal clause, unlike the ones before it and some after, uh, requires notice to the UN Security Council, and it requires a statement of the reasons for withdrawal. At the time of DPRK's withdrawal, there was an attempt by the U.S. to get the Council to do something about it. All the Council did was to recommend to uh, North Korea that it stay within the treaty for the time being, and it vetoed any other, or threatened to veto any other action. But if you can get the P5 to agree to take action against a withdrawal, to require the country to stay in the treaty, at least temporarily, that's legal, it's feasible under the existing withdrawal clause. Shah Tarzi of Bradley University. Um, The impression that emerged out of the national security strategy document a couple of years ago was an inherent uh, unilateralist foreign policy strategy for the United States in dealing with a whole spectrum of issues. And I was wondering that there might be potentially a consensus on the panel that when it comes to nuclear non-proliferation, it inherently lends itself only primarily to multilateralist strategy. That's the sense I got from Dr. Blick's uh, statements and whether the other panelists would agree with that as well. And the second is, what other uh, instruments would you particularly highlight in dealing with the various spectrums? And you can use each one of them, whether it's A.K. Khan or uh, uh, terrorist uh, proliferation and so on. Uh, I guess what I'm trying to get at is whether there have been potentially a greater emphasis on the use and the threat of the use of force in American foreign policy, perhaps at the expense of other elements of soft power, of course, Afghanistan excluded. Thank you. Hi, my name is Gina Chestnut. I'm one of the honor students currently studying at the Center for International Security and Cooperation. My question is uh, that I heard several of the panelists refer to an arms race with the terrorists. Um, It seems to me that that might misstate the nature of the problem, um, which implies a relative equality between the two sides. Um, My question is whether this might not better be characterized as a form of asymmetric warfare, um, and, I, and I do wonder if the uh, panelists' conclusions would change at all if uh, this characterization was applied. Thank you. Well, we have uh, one minute before we go into overtime, so <laughs> let me urge you to be uh, succinct uh, and selective in your responses. Dr. Blix. Well, the thrust of my statement was really to show that the world having come from the Machiavellian time, no restraints at all on the use of force, and then going through the League of Nations and up to the UN with a a 
design of a collective security system that didn't work during the, the whole Cold War. And then the war 1991 was the euphoria about the functioning of the collective security and putting out Saddam. And then the, the hopes, the absence of the veto, which should have given the possibility for a further cooperative order to avoid wars, sliding into a war in Iraq that was not justified by the reasons that they had advanced. And now I see that there is, a, and I explain, I try to be understanding to the U.S. why did they start to doubt the NPT, and that was that Saddam succeeded in hiding it, but they continued along with the rearmament, and now they seem to be looking to a world order, a unilateralist situation where with their military force and, and disregarding the whole of this cooperative system. This will not bring a cooperation that the speaker a moment ago talked about to counter the, uh, to counter the, the demand side. We will need an inclusive system, I think, the assistance of the others, whereas now at the NPT conference, I think you will view that the vast majority of countries will remain rather upset about the unilateralist approach to it. And while the NPT, the, the demand will not increase necessarily by a failure of the conference. I don't think that you will have a cascade of states because there are many other restraints why states do not go for nuclear weapons than the treaty. But the treaty, as I see it, there's a sort of nuclear illegal threshold which they don't like to pass. And when the U.S. is downgrading the multilateral side, then that threshold is being lowered a bit. The dangers are a bit greater. But I don't think there's going to be a rush to them. I bow to the authority of my friend George Bunn on the exact formulation of the MPT withdrawal clause, but I, and, and I, I'm not unconcerned about the matter, but I think that you have a solution anyway. You can always go to the Security Council and say that this country's withdrawal uh, is unacceptable. Where you stated that they have to give notice and they have to give reason, but do they have to give re acceptable reasons for the withdrawal? Well, I won't go into these details. The main thrust I've explained what was. Understanding that, understand that we are in overtime, I wonder if you might answer Dean Wilkening's question about uh, what Saddam Hussein was up to. Oh, sorry, yes. Because if you don't, that's all anyone will talk about during the break anyway, trying to guess what the answer is. All right. Well, I'll, I'll give you good advice. Buy my book. <laughs> <laughs> and the first point is that uh, Saddam, the, the, the leverage we, we had was that he should, uh, sanctions would be lifted if he came clean, if, and if inspectors report and security council decide to lift the sanctions. However, he would often hear Madeleine Albright and others say that, look, we will not lift sanctions unless uh, Saddam is gone. Now, that didn't necessarily increase his uh, inclination to cooperate with inspectors. He could just as well be nasty. And in Delfer's report, latest report, you will find the same answers as I have, answer that I have in my book, namely that he was ambivalent. On the one hand, he will say to the UN that I've done what I, I should, and you should lift the sanctions. On the other hand, he wanted to say to Iran and to others, look, I'm still dangerous. I'm still standing tall in the Arab world. It was, as I explained it, like hanging a sign on the door saying, beware of the dog without having a dog. It's cheaper. <laughs> I think that a third element was also, and that's more controversial, that the UNSCOM was not a genuine or fully international inspection force. They had, as we know from Clark, uh, a number of people from the CIA and from the MI6, and, uh, and you had the period of, of uh, no-fly zones which were enforced by bombings. And the Iraqis could very well at least suspect that some of these people extra for extra in the UNSCOM missions, that they were people who identified targets. 
and that could also not have increased their will to cooperate. So there are a number of reasons why, why they didn't cooperate. I, uh, I would like to begin uh, by briefly responding to the question of whether uh, addressing nuclear nonproliferation, addressing nuclear proliferation necessarily requires multilateralist as opposed to unilateralist strategies. And my reply is that no, uh, in fact, everything needs to be on the table. And I think that traditionally, to the extent we've constructed an effective web, uh, the United States and the world has put everything on the table. That is to say, we need to have uh, an important component has been, for example, bilateral security guarantees. That, I think, helps explain why Japan has felt like it has not needed its own nuclear deterrent. Uh, at the same time, we have made use of uh, what are now called coalitions of the willing. The Proliferation Security Initiative is an example of that. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.